This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood and drought, people who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and those who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert. Today we're chatting with Greg Cookle, Rural Bank's Regional Manager Agribusiness for Western Victoria, Board Member at Virtue Cropping Group and Director at Swan Hill District Health. In this episode, Greg talks about his journey from growing up on a farm in SA to working in Victoria's ag industry, the phenomenal performance of farmland values in the Wimmera and why organisations like Birchip Cropping Group are so important to farmers. You'll also notice a constant theme throughout what Greg has to say about not giving up. I'm again joined by my colleague, James Usel. Thanks for joining me, James. Great to be here, Annie. Let's jump in. Well, welcome, Greg, to Beyond the Farm Gate, our first ever fan, I believe. Yeah, I'll take that claim. I think I am your first fan, so I'll take that one. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's great to finally have you on. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to chat with you over the last few months about our different guests that we've had on, and now it's your turn. We'll turn the tables. Yeah, it sounds good. Hopefully, I hold up to expectations, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, first question then. So can you tell us where your connection to Ag First started, Greg? I'd probably say Ag's been probably part of my life all the way through. I've Grew up on a small dairy farm in the Adelaide Hills for the first 11 years, so at a place called Ichunga. So, a typical farm kid growing up there. And then, when we were 11, we sold from there and we went to Meningi, which is, for those of you who wouldn't be aware, Meningi is on Lake Albert, which is right at the end of the Murray near the Coorong. And we bought a grazing property there and converted that into a dairy farm. So, that was, I suppose, my original connections with agriculture and culture had been through many generations through the family from there. and it was great growing up on a dairy farm and farm in general, just being around livestock. I enjoy being around cattle, those type of things. And yeah, just a typical country kid growing up on a farm, riding motorbikes and doing stupid things and all that sort of stuff that you normally do as a kid, which was fantastic. So I think that's certainly where the, my passion and interest from agriculture certainly stemmed from. It was a great upbringing, that's for sure. Yeah, great. And then that continued on to study and then it's now become your career. Can you tell us a bit more about that story as well? Yeah, and no, I certainly can. I suppose I always wanted to have continue on with an involvement in agriculture and it was probably a different time. So I'm, I shouldn't give away my age, but what am I, 45 or 46, something like that. So I'm pretty old. So when I was growing up in the 90s, the world was a very different place and agriculture was a very different place to where it is today. And there wasn't too many kids my age going home on the farm. There wasn't a lot of prospects from that perspective. It was pretty hard to get a job in general. And I sort of Decided I'd try and go down. Originally, I was going to go down the ag science line. That was my original plan. And so I went off to, I did year 12 at Herbray in Adelaide. And I thought, yep, I'm going to go do ag science. I'm going to do chemistry, biology, math, blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff. I did all right at school, never enjoyed school, but I did all right. Anyway, I rocked up year 12. My kids laugh at this story, but I actually failed year 12 the first time. And <laughs> yes, I know. So yeah, I, year 12, failed it. I failed chemistry. Did all right in a couple of other subjects, whatever, and then sort of got the end of that and thought, well, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, how about I go back and have another go? So I turned around, went back and did year 12 again, or it was year 13, it was called then, which you talk to people about that and they go, what? You went back and did year 12 again? Yeah, I did. So I did year 12 again and I made what ended up being a pretty fatal mistake, but 
I sort of had in my idea that if I did chemistry the second year around, I probably should be right. Did it the first year, even though I failed, I probably know a bit. I should be able to get my way through. Anyway, I ended up about halfway through the second time in year 12 and thought chemistry is not for me and concentrated on the other subjects like business, math and economics and ag science and a couple of those sort of subjects. Put my time and effort into that. Ended up passing year 12 and uh, ironically failed chemistry again and even worse, got a second, a worse score the second year of chemistry than I did the first year. <laughs> anyway, that's my foray into science. So I pretty quickly made up my mind then that ag science wasn't for me. I'm going to get down the ag business line. So I ended up studying agricultural business at the Uni of Adelaide, which at the Roseworthy campus. So that was three years at there before I went and got a job. So that was a great degree that was a combination between business and agriculture, which was probably right up my alley in hindsight. And then into banking. So that's where the sort of the leap's gone from there. And so you, you got into banking and with that brought about a move to Victoria. Can you tell us a bit about that and how your role has evolved through being with Rural Finance to now being at Rural Bank? I finished uni and was literally looking for a job, I suppose. And as I said, back then, they weren't that easy to find. And I can remember flicking through the weekly times because I thought, look, I'm happy to travel anywhere to get a job. I'd always thought I'd like to get into banking. Saw an ad for a lending manager, I think it was called, was Rural Finance. So a person who grown up in South Australia had no idea who Rural Finance was. So for those of you that aren't from Victoria, originally Rural Finance was a government-owned bank that was essentially originally set up as a soldier settlement commission for to set up soldier settlers in Victoria that eventually went into commercial lending, competing against all the major banks and so forth, but still government-owned. And anyway, I applied for this job. I let it back to say you missed out. There's a bit of a common theme here. I miss out the first time on those things. And then had a phone call a couple of weeks later to say, hey, can you come over to Melbourne for an interview? I hadn't been to Melbourne in my life, let alone jumped on a plane, I don't think, by that stage. So anyway, next day, took off to Melbourne. Had an interview, got back home again the next day, and they offered me a role as a lending manager. So it was basically like a graduate-type role that probably wasn't too formalised in Warrnambool. So packed up and went to Melbourne for four weeks, a little bit of training, and then, yeah, down to Warrnambool. That was a bit of – probably Warrnambool was good coming from a daring background, a lot of daring clients, so I felt familiar in that sort of territory, but just trying to understand banking and, you know, the 21-year-old trying to hold conversations with people and their banking was a, was a bit of an interesting one. So I did that for 18 months and then shifted up to Swan Hill and I was up here, so I'm in Swan Hill now, but up here for three and a half odd years and that's where I met my wife and then we ended up shifting to Mildura. So Swan Hill was great. It was a bit of exposure to the broadacre cropping industry, which was something that I'd sort of a reasonable amount to do with, but not a lot. So that was great from that perspective. Then Mildura was a complete eye-opener to me because I'd had nothing to do with horticulture or viticulture. It was completely foreign to me and I really enjoyed getting to know those industries and how they work and had some really good clients that I could not ask the dumb questions, but ask just some of those questions. Can you explain to me how this works and that works? And Mildura is a fascinating place with many different industries and the way it operates. So I really enjoyed being there. So I was there for four years and then got the opportunity, there's a bit of a pattern to this, to go back to Warrnambool. And I was down there for six years and that was in a, I suppose, a first manager, what I'd call a manager's role is in managing staff. And that was looking after Warrnambool and Colac. That was really probably a good way of, I suppose, I still manage clients, but also learning how to manage and lead people, which is something I think you could spend the rest of your life doing and never quite become an expert at it. But that was a great way of getting into there. And then miraculously, after six years, shifted back to Swan Hill and been here now 10, heading 11 years and roles have sort of changed over that time. The organisation's changed, so Rural Finance got bought by the Bendigo Bank, so we became part of Rural Bank and then now moved in the, for the last 
seven or eight years into a regional manager's role to the point now where I look after Western Victoria, so manage our staff through there, which is, from an agricultural point of view, is in some ways very grange-dominated because it is. We've got the Wimmera and the Mallee, but then some big variations to pastoral country in far western New South Wales to the dairy farms down in the southwest. And, you know, I've gone from one week being Ivanhoe to the next, in halfway to Broken Hill, something like that, to the next week running around a, a beef operation at Hamilton and every extreme in between. So that's probably my, my work shift around and how I sort of got to where I am now. But, yeah, very all all still being involved in agriculture all the way along every step of the way. Greg, you've got a relatively young team at the bank. What advice would you give to young people wanting to enter the banking industry that perhaps are a little nervous or aren't quite sure where to start or don't think that perhaps they can hold those conversations like you were saying with farmers? I do have a really young team and that's probably come about from a lot of what I put it down as sort of internal recruitment where we've brought people in straight out of uni or grads and then promoted them and, and helped them into their roles, which has been really, I enjoy seeing start people come through that type of environment and go from there. Look, I think banking from a career perspective is great. It, there's no end to where you can end up. And my bit of advice to someone is just get your foot in the door somehow to start with. And I look at the staff that we've got now and particularly those younger ones, when I mean younger, they're now in their 30s, but they were young. Well, they might still claim they're young, but as I said, starting to feel old. Some of them have come through graduate programs. Some of them have applied for assistance roles. Some of them have come through the telebranch network. And as I said, my bit of advice would be just get your foot in the door wherever you can. Once you get your foot in the door, scope out where you want to go, do a really good job of get noticed and you'll soon get picked up and someone will be, oh, that person might be good for us and you'll get some tap on the shoulder from someone. So look, that'd be my bit of advice and just work hard at what you're doing. Don't be frightened to just stick your hand out and have a go at the next job. I think, well, I've always probably tended to put people into roles when maybe they might say, I'm not quite ready for it. And that's probably a fair assumption too. But look, if you're 70 or 80% there, you can just make the other rest up. So have a get in there, have a go, and then get the right support around you. And having those conversations with clients and people can be, you know, some of them are fantastic and easy. Some of them can actually be really quite difficult, but you don't know until you have a go. So it's a bit of that sink or swim theory. And look, 90% of the time people swim, that's for sure. And even though banker by day, or should I maybe say by winter, because come the warmer months, you play a slightly different role in your local community. Yeah, I do. You mean my expert my what I get up to over harvest time? I do. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so I swap working for a bank to drive in a truck <laughs> over harvest. So, yeah, look, I obviously very well settled in Swan Hill. I love the place and got some really good friends. And a lot of our friends are farmers. And back seven or eight years ago, a good friend of ours, uh, he was Said, oh, I think I had to use up some holidays, I think. Was bank, the work told me you got to go use some holidays. So what else could I do? I'll go and get my hand over harvest. So I spent a bit of time driving one of his headers and that was fun and did that for a couple of years in a row. And then one stage there, he, it was you know, a couple of headers and a truck and he was the only remote person with a truck license and we didn't get a breakdown and the whole show had come to an end. I said, oh, maybe I should give him a truck license. So went off and got my license to drive a semi. So that took a year or so by the time he go through that process and did that for a year or two. And then like all farmers, he decided, well, a semi's not big enough. I'm going to go buy an A-trailer. So it becomes a B-double. So then I thought, well, what am I going to do now? I have to go and get my license to drive that. So a year or two went ago, went and got my multi-combination license, which I kid you not, is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Harder than chemistry? Harder than chemistry, harder <laughs> than university. I have a huge respect for truck drivers now after doing that. 
it is not easy, but I got there. So yeah, the last few years have been driving his truck at, at harvest and hay time, which I I love it. One, it gets me out of work, and what I mean by work is out of the walls, get me away from a front of a computer, and you end up working probably twice the hours I do at work. We're out in the sunshine, enjoying it, warming up over summer, and then it's but it's also very sociable. So he's at Ultima, and you tend to cart most of the grain to Ultima, and yeah, you turn up to the silos and you meet this person, you meet that person, you know that person through work and you're seeing them all the time at the silo. So it becomes very sociable and you get to work out who's who in the zoo and so forth. So that's my harvest job that happens when things go quiet at work. I sort of disappear for a few weeks and go and do that, which I love. So, yeah. With that different perspective, if you weren't banking, what else would you do? Is there a different career path perhaps you would take? My kids would love this question because I often talk about my alternative career ideas <laughs> and they vary from, I've been watching Outback Ringers. Mm-hmm. I would love to go bull catching. That would be right up my alley. Oh, I could do that for the rest of my life. That looks so much fun. I also wouldn't mind have been a vet if I was actually smart enough. I'd love to be a vet. I reckon that'd be a pretty good occupation. That'd be, again, not a budging cat vet. That'd drive me crazy, but a big animal vet. That'd be great. I And what are my other career types? I was, I've often talked about I'd love to go driving livestock carriers, like the trucks cutting livestock, again, up my alley. And the other one that they have a laugh at is my other alternative career ever since I was a kid was to be a, an Air Force fighter pilot. I reckon that would be great fun. And with Top Gun coming out at the moment, like that, <laughs> I'm reliving my theory about becoming that again. And to fly something that would have that much power and go in it would be just fantastic. And the best bit is I reckon I'd, all your friends, you could just sneak up behind them in them and scare the hell out of them flying over the top of them. I reckon it'd be great fun. <laughs> so obviously very varied. And, but to be honest, we probably a lot of them would be, probably a lot of them would still be agricultural, farming related in one way or another. If money wasn't an object, I'd probably go and buy a farm at the same time just to keep me occupied. But who knows? I think I'm a bit old now to become the jet fighter pilot. But anyway, you can always dream. And if you think truck license is hard. The difference is, I reckon, that one of those jets, you don't have to reverse it. Driving a truck forward is easy. Driving it backward is extremely hard is what I've learned from that. I don't know. For someone that's never flown a plane in my life, so I've got no <laughs> knowledge about this at all, but that's, that's my theory anyway. So if there's a pilot listening, please tell me if I'm wrong, but that's my, that's my theory. Oh, that's great. When are you going to start rocking a pair of aviators around the office, Greg? Yeah, look, I probably should, that, and I need to come up with a call sign. Like, you know, Maverick, they're really cool. What was the other one? Iceman and different Iceman. ones like that. Yeah. I need to come up with a good call sign. So changing pace slightly, or very much so, it's been an absolutely cracking 12 months for farmland prices in Australia, but particularly in your neck of the woods, as in Western Victoria, Greg, can you tell us a little bit about some of the crazy records that have been set over the past year? I look back over the last, particularly the last five or 10 years, and they've been just steadily going up and up and up. And every time there's a sale, everybody says, oh, no, that's too dear. It's never going to get higher than that. And in the last 12 or 18 months, it's just doubled, if not tripled again. And it's been quite phenomenal. And what's actually really interesting is it's not the corporates and the super funds out there necessarily driving it. Like they are out there buying it. Some of them are actually getting out. But it's really the well-established family farms that are really going out and buying these properties and driving it up. And I think it's a combination of commodity prices have been generally in most industries have been pretty good. Seasons have been pretty good. Interest rates have been really good. There's a pent-up demand for land, and I look at it from the point of view now that, again, if you go back many years ago, you'd struggle to find what I call a young farmer, so the next generation coming onto the farm. 
a lot of farms now, there's one or two of the next generation are on the farm. So there's this sudden need where we need to get bigger and we need to cater for this. So, which I think is fantastic that's been driven by farmers buying this country as opposed to, you know, outside investors and so forth. But it's really been across the board, most industries and most areas. So, look, who knows where it'll, it can't, well, it can't keep going like at the same pace like this forever. By any means, it just becomes uneconomical. But you know, it'd be interesting as interest rates come up a bit if that's going to settle things down again, which might need it. You know, it might be a good thing. But look, there's still plenty of demand out there, that's for sure. And people probably comes up next door. It's probably the last time it came up was 40, 50 years ago, and it might be another 40, 50 years before it comes up again. So you can't blame people for having a go, that's for sure. But I suppose like, the bit that I shouldn't say worry, but that everybody's sort of concerned about is that there's a disconnect now between the value of the land and, the, and its productivity. That connection's disappeared. And you know, the only way people are justifying it is by subsidising essentially the new purchase by their existing operation. So you've got to have a good profitable operation to be able to prop up the new purchase because then on its own it would not often won't stand up by itself. But yeah, so look, it'll be interesting. To, it has been phenomenal what's been uh, happening and let's just hope it probably continues on but maybe just calms down a bit and uh, we get a bit of stability for a while. It might be good for everybody, I think. We'll only know in a few years' time and look back. What about people looking to purchase a farm? for the first time, what options are there for them? Because to me, it would appear like it would almost be impossible from the outside looking in to purchase a farm at the moment. How can we continue to encourage people to look at those options? Mm. It is very hard unless you're born into it and you're born with that equity behind you. There's no denying that at all. It's interesting what we're starting to see with a few people with equity partners and those type of things going into new farming operations. And I think that's something that's probably relatively new in the last 10 years. And from someone coming into farming that wanted to get into it, it's probably the only option they've got if there's no family help. You know, I think if some of those type of scenarios add up, I think that could work quite well for new entrants into the industry. But I think for anybody wanting to get in and getting into ownership, they would know this anyway, but it's a long haul. Like I said, probably going to be a 20, 30 year exercise to get to the point where you're, you're well established and so forth. But there's still paths in, but it, it certainly has got harder, that's for sure. But I'll, it is pleasing to see what these equity partnerships are starting to do and we'll see how they play out over the next few years as well, how people can get farming operations up and going while still paying a dividend off to the investor and then eventually being a payment out. That'll be the true test of eventually where they can pay that investor out and take control themselves. Never say never, but it's certainly tough, that's for sure. Might be time for us to have Sam Marwood back on the podcast. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Talk about his work. So among the many hats that you wear, being the regional manager in Western Victoria and as a truck driver during harvest, you're also a board member at Birchip Cropping Group. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, look, it, it, yeah, I am. And I've been on the board there of BCG probably, yeah, 12, heading 18 months. And I suppose a bit of how I ended up doing that. Seven or eight years ago, I did the Australian Rural Leadership Program. And that was a fantastic 18 months. And for those people that aren't aware, it's a very I think, experiential type program. It's not textbooks and sitting in the classroom, which is right up my alley. It was an 18-month program including getting dumped out in the middle of Kimberley's for two weeks and trundling around with people and trying to teach them, you know, well, not teach them, trying to learn about yourself and how you lead other people through those different scenarios. Went numerous places around Australia, went to Indonesia for a couple of weeks as part of the program and so forth. And that actually came about from you needed a sponsor to do that program and Rural Finance actually sponsored me to do that. Well, I think it was like $55,000 for me to do that. And I, I really appreciate the time, the money they put into me to do that. But at the end, where I'm getting to, James, is at the end of that program, someone said to us, your sponsor 
you know, everybody had different sponsors. They said, look, someone's put a lot of money into you to go and do this program. What are you going to do to give back to your work, your business, your community, your career, whatever? And I thought, oh, that's a fair comment and sort of sat on that for a while. And prior to marriage and kids and all those type of things, I was pretty heavily involved in the apex and those type of things, and I, which was great. But I thought I didn't want to go back to cooking sausages and barbecues and all that sort of stuff, sort of do something different. And probably 18 months after I'd finished the Australian Rural Leadership Program, I applied for a board role with Swan Hill District Health, so a local hospital, which was completely left field, the health industry. Once again, didn't get on the first time, second time round, got in the second year round, got on the board of the hospital and that was, a, as I said, a real opener, first board position and really enjoyed that and I'm still on the board now. And then 18 months, two years ago, something like that, BCG advertised a non-farmer member board member so looking for someone specifically with a banking or accounting background or something like that and look I've had a involvement with BCG or not even necessarily involvement but an association with BCG since probably early 2000 so Rural Finance was one of the founding sponsors of the Birchip Cropping Group so we'd always had a close association from that and when this role came along I thought well I'd always admired BCG and what they do so much I'd love to be involved in that and I'd also I love the way that incremental improvements that BCGs help people farming in the Wimmera and the Mallee over the years to develop and refine and business and the way they operate. And I thought, I hope I could make a bit of a help with there. So anyway, I applied for that role and was successful, which I was wrapped about. And yeah, look what I'd love about the role with BCG is BCG is a very dynamic organisation. It's very fiercely independent, which I love. It's not swayed by trends or money or anything like that. It's there's independent science and research and I'll tell the truth about what comes out of that. So I love that. And then I also, as I said, I, I think BCG, I look at the way farmers were farming in the 90s, when I, late 90s, early 2000s, when I first came to the Mallee compared to where they were farming in the millennium drought and I the farming practices that went on there. And I think a lot of farmers wouldn't have been around if they were still farming the way they were in the late 90s, 2000s, just with minimum till and so forth. And to where they are today, and BCG certainly been right at the forefront of all of that. So I enjoy the, even though I don't come from a science background, certainly I enjoy the fact of being able to sort of help and try and influence it, hopefully the organisation to head in the right way to ensure that the members, who which basically what we're working for, get the best information and outcome out of it. So BCG is really is a great organisation. Most people know a very well-respected organisation and, and I just enjoy being part of it. So, yeah, it's been a great venture with them and hopefully stick around with them for a fair bit longer too. And what else does BCG have planned in the short-term future? Yeah, look, I think in the short term, there's a couple of things that are on at the moment that are probably a bit of highlights. There's certainly they're trying to re-establish essentially a young farmer network, which was running back a few years ago and ran out of funding. And then now we've been lucky enough internally to be able to fund it to run seven young farmer groups through the Wimmera and Mallee, where essentially they're, I suppose, coordinated by a BCG staff member, but farmer members and necessarily young farmer, there's no age bracket to it, but I think young farmers, but essentially trying to help as a group, or what are the, you know, they're in geographical areas, what are some of the agronomic issues in your area or, or things that need addressing? What can they learn and develop from? What trials can they run in their own patch and so forth? So to me, I think that's a great thing to see what BCG is doing at the moment in with that. And that's just getting off the ground now and just me, a couple of people locally that I've bailed into that have said, oh, look, I've thrown my hat in the ring to become one of, you know, to get involved in, a, in one of the local groups here. I think that's fantastic. I think they'll get a lot out of it because we don't really have that in the area. So 
to me, that's really good, I think, for BCG from that perspective. So that's great. Another one is, I suppose, at the moment, looking at trying to secure some funding for a residential complex at Birchip for the use of a lot of students and so forth that come to Birchip and people that come to study and so forth. And it's a real issue in that area to try and get accommodation for people and so forth and trying to set that up at the moment and lobby government and all those type of things. So that's a bit of exciting. I always like building stuff, so it'd be great if we could get that going. I'd, I'd be the first one out there trying to get it up and going. But that's exciting for BCG as well. So there's a couple of things that are hot at the moment, I suppose, James. You mentioned the Australian Rural Leadership Program that you completed a few years ago. What was your biggest takeaway from that and what have you brought back to your role as an RMA at Rural Bank? I think what I learned out of the program was probably more you learn about yourself and the way that you interact with people. When I, and if I can put it this way, when you're trying to lead or manage a group of staff, you can sit there and say, why can't they just be like me? Why can't they understand what I'm saying? Why can't they follow what I'm doing? I understand it, why you can't? And I think the realisation is that everybody's different and actually the way they are, you can't change it. So the only way you're going to influence people is to change the way you approach them. And I can recall one of these particular things, we were up in the Kimberleys and there was a group of five or six of us, didn't know each other, threw us together and it was about seven or eight o'clock at night and it was coming in dark and someone came along and said, you've got to walk your way through a, I don't know how you would describe it, but a dry creek bed up and down all these boulders and rocks and all that in the dark and come out the other end and someone's got to lead this group to get you through. And, and you know, here we are at two o'clock in the morning, tired of anything, been wading through water above our waist, climbing up rocks, everything like that. And that's when people's emotions or get to them where they said, I'm over this, this stuff. And you've got to try and get the group to gather and move your way along. And, and I think what I learned from that is, yeah, everybody's different, but don't expect them to try and change to fit in with you. If you want to get the best out of people, you can have to change the way that you work with them. And that'll be different to the way I work with you as opposed to someone else to try and get the best out of them. So I think that's probably my, that was my take home message from it. I think you, you actually learn more about yourself than you do about other people. And Hopefully, I know myself a bit better, but or the way you influence people. But yeah, that's my highlight, I think. My key takeaway from today is that if you don't get it done on the first time, you have another crack. And what our listeners would not know is this is not your first time on Beyond the Farm Gate. When James joined us, we actually did a test interview with you. So the trend continues. That's right. Does it mean I failed the first one and I've come back to see if I succeed the second time? No, Greg. (laughs) You're fabulous on both occasions, but I do have one final question for you. And as our very first fan, you are very familiar with it, but I'm still going to ask it. When you're out on farm, what boots do you wear? There's two answers to this question. So when I'm on farm, when I'm working, as in rural bank working, a pair of Aaron Williams, which is probably stock standard, well, it costs a lot of money, but get a lot of value. I think I've only owned my third pair and can get seven or eight years out of them. So that goes well. When I'm not, for many years, I was a Rossi slide-on wearer and they were great and I walk a fair bit in the mornings and you always walked in my boots and all those sort of things as well as work and everything else. And a couple of years ago, everybody started walking around with these lace-up, zip-up boots, work boots. I thought, oh, that looks interesting. Maybe we'll try them. So a couple of years ago, I bought a pair of mongrel boots and they were fantastic and they're the best boots I've ever had. And I had to bid farewell to them about a month ago when I bought an, another new pair of mongrels because I got two and a half years out of them. I thought, well, I've done pretty well. So that's my two pairs of boots, Aaron Williams and a pair of mongrels, and I'm pretty well done. Quite the wardrobe, Greg. Yes, good wardrobe. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us again on Beyond the Farm Gate. It's been great to chat. No, it's been a pleasure. It's been fantastic. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Rural Bank. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links and other resources, we've added those to the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Annie Herbert and I'll chat to you next time.